we never would have hooked up on our own. It took something as random as a letter of the alphabet to forge a friendship this strong. Funny how that works. But even after all these years, I still couldn't figure Abby out. She had a crude sense of humor, constantly pulling pranks, laughing at fart jokes, yet woke up at 5 o'clock every morning to meditate. She hated hanging out with a lot of people, yet craved a packed house. She loved to travel, yet refused to apply to colleges outside of San Francisco because she wanted to continue her practice at the local Zen Center. My best friend was an enigma even to me. We grabbed two coffees in a booth for our usual round of Saturday catch-up at the local diner. We talked about how the comedy scene was slowly turning around, finally. We wished we'd been born 15 or 20 years earlier, when San Francisco was one of the top cities in the country to work, when Robin Williams performed to SRO crowds several nights a week. Back then, Margaret Cho had left home at 16 to hit the road. Now, at 17, we usually had to lie our way into the clubs. The punchline wouldn't even let us in without a parent. Were they kidding? Because we were still learning, no gig was a waste. Not even emceeing shows at the community center, or why. And hope of hopes, a scout for Conan or Letterman might spot us someday and ask us to perform. Although the school year had just begun, the Saturday morning yak fest was fast becoming our senior year routine. It never got Abby and me an inch closer to playing bigger clubs, but it reassured us that we weren't wasting our time practicing into tape recorders and mirrors for nothing, that we actually might have a minuscule shot at being funny for a living. We ordered two more coffees to go, then headed to Union Square for Saturday ritual number two. For years, our school had had a community service requirement for seniors. Most of the other students had volunteered in a church or homeless shelter, but not us. Because Abby had been going to the Zen Center since she was 12, she talked one of the monks into signing off on our outreach program. Our idea, filtered through Abby's love of Zen and our mutual flair for the theatrical, was to get people to be more present, more aware. So we went to various locales in the city and flashed cards with Zen mottos at the people walking by. Are you awake? Are you here or somewhere else? Wake up! And Abby's favorite, wherever you go, there you are. People usually either ignored us or thought we wanted money. We collected $15 our first time out, but once in a while, someone really got it. Those people would look us in the eyes and smile, become more present in their day. This is so much better than calling out bingo numbers at the nursing home, Abby said. I'm almost convinced we are performing a service, I agreed. The last guy shifted right in front of me. I keep telling you, you've got to come to the center. A room full of people meditating for hours. Abby flashed her card and a smile at a mother wheeling crying twins in a stroller. The poor woman looked like she didn't want to be present. Maybe it was the beautiful fall weather or a very conscious neighborhood. But several other people really responded. An old man put down his groceries and asked us about our project. We ended up talking to him for 20 minutes. After an hour and a half, we packed it in. You want to come to the movies with Kevin and me, Abby asked. Going to the movies was an opportunity I'd usually never say no to, but I had two papers to finish. Kevin was a nice guy Abby had met through her brother, Billy. I never felt like a fifth wheel joining them. I liked Kevin a lot but knew not to get too attached to the guys who stepped through the revolving door of Abby's affections. I left Abby in Union Square and headed home. When a woman walked by me carrying a chihuahua wearing a calico bonnet, I took out my notebook and logged the image for future use. Ed Lynch from the next street over walked by, too. He had graduated from my high school the year before. Even though we passed each other almost every day, 
he never bothered to nod or say hello. I had given up trying to be friendly months ago. It wasn't just Ed. When it came to most guys, it was as if I were wearing invisibility sunscreen. It's not that there was anything wrong with me. Okay, maybe I was a bit on the uncoordinated side, too eager to please. But with most guys, it seemed as if processing my presence wasn't worth their time. Friends and family have always described me as two things, smart and funny. Never pretty, never interesting, just smart and funny. I wasn't complaining. Those were necessary qualities for my chosen line of work. But it would be nice to at least register on the attractiveness scale once in a while. Unlike Abby, I hadn't had a boyfriend since Peter last year, and even that was stretching the definition of boyfriend way past anything Webster would have recognized. I had better luck holding the attention of a room full of people in a comedy club than a guy. I couldn't decide if that was good or just plain pathetic. Idea for a routine. In my neighborhood growing up, I was everybody else's invisible friend. I looked at the card peeking out of my bag. Are you aware? I finished the rest of the sentence in my mind. Are you aware that no one is aware of you? I scribbled a quick bit about Zen riddles in my notebook. Just because Abby wasn't going to use them in her act didn't mean I couldn't give it a go. They'd be better than the sex, drugs, and parents' jokes that filled the sets of most comics my age. I smiled, thinking about the sign from last year's comedy workshop that I'd hung over my desk at home. If life gives it to you, use it. Being in comedy was similar to working in a giant recycling center. Nothing went to waste. When I first told my mother I wanted to hit the comedy scene, she flipped. Late nights, grades, alcohol, secondhand smoke, blah, blah, blah. It took two years of playing local parties and talent shows before she finally let me drag her to the comedy stop downtown. One good thing about living in the city, I've grown up bopping around the many different neighborhoods, using public transportation, and always, always gathering material. I started sneaking into teen open mic nights at the local Jewish community center. I wasn't Jewish, so the first time I went... I pinned one of the shoulder pads from one of my mother's suits onto the back of my head for a yarmulke. I found out when I got there, of course, that the men usually wore the yarmulkes. The woman who helped me unpin the shoulder pad took pity and let me run through my routine anyway. It was my first time on stage, but I strode to the microphone with confidence. All the awards I'd won in school for academic excellence paled in comparison to the scattered applause of a handful of kids sitting in a Knob Hill gym at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. I was 15 years old and hooked. A few of the clubs used to let us sneak in underage until the city clamped down on the drinking laws. So for almost three years, God bless her, my mother sat in smoky clubs and watched me perform. Except when I auditioned. I was always so nervous I made her wait outside. On open mic nights like this one, the quality of material could be iffy at best. Mom never complained. When mom couldn't go, she sent her assistant to be the adult who accompanied us. Delilah had been with us for years. She was a tall, black, athletic drag queen who was my Uncle Danny's boyfriend up until the end. Uncle Danny contracted AIDS back in the early 80s. His illness brought us here from Seattle. Mom and Delilah comforted Uncle Danny through his pain, then comforted each other when he finally died. Mom and Dad said we were staying in San Francisco because of the weather and the career opportunities, but... Even then, I knew Mom couldn't bear the thought of leaving the city where her only brother was buried. When Delilah's travel agency went under a few years later, Mom hired her as a full-time Jill-of-all-trades. 
I never knew Delilah's real name, or saw her out of costume. She flipped if anyone referred to her as he. She was known around the Castro for her impersonations of TV moms. When she walked down the street as Carol Brady, people hounded her for autographs. Mom sat down in the back of the club, ordered herself a beer, and told me to have fun. I headed to the lobby to wait with Abby. Are you doing the bit about the stuttering telemarketers? She asked. No, this is my new leap year set. I'm not sure it's ready yet. What are you doing? Abby put out her cigarette at the bar. My I hate the Olympics bit. One of my favorites. Hey, let's scrap our routines and just wing it, Abby suggested. Uh, yeah, right. I kept walking. She blocked my path. I'm serious. Like that improv class we took last year at the Learning Center. Half of those skits we did were horrible, I said. The other half were brilliant. Come on, be here now, remember? No way. There's too much at stake. There's nothing at stake, she said. The only people here are tourists and freaks like us. I told her not everyone was Paula Poundstone, having impromptu dialogues with the audience all night. Abby barely listened. She'd heard my excuses before. I knew sooner or later I'd have to let go and trust my instincts more, but it scared the life out of me. Standing on stage in front of people? No problem. Winging it without a script? Trusting in my gut that I'd know what to do? Problem. Big problem. Rick, the manager, approached the mic. He'd owned the comedy stop for 20 years, had seen all the heavy hitters come and go and go and go. His stories of John Stewart showing up to encourage the newcomers kept all of us eyeing the door in anticipation. Rick was shorter than I and wore the same Buzzcocks t-shirt every night. The fact that he encouraged us and kept us on the open mic list made Abby and me overlook the fact that we'd never been paid a cent. Because we value...